I'm Anna Marie Cox, and there is nothing that would stop me from cloning my dog. Yeah, that tracks. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. Don't wave your fancy degrees at me. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... World Society Theory. And relational dialectics. Today, we'll be talking about Futurama, because you made us. <laughs> and in the next few weeks, well, actually, I think next week is... Butlervember! Butler yes, I have to just let you say it. Butlervember. Yes, yes. Butlervember! Butlervember! Where we celebrate Gerard Butler and movies that begin with a letter G. I assume we're Do we gonna... know what we're doing first? Well, I was assuming... We we this is a real-life, like, actually... Staff meeting. Real-life staff <laughs> meeting that, that, that the <laughs> listeners are going to hear. I was assuming we would do it in chronological order, starting with the earliest and then proceeding with... I was thinking whatever we do, we're going to end with the actual good one, which is yeah, Greenland. which is Greenland, which is also the most recent one. So I think so, we start with Gamer. I think that's the okay. oldest one. We will start. All with right, gamer. we're going to start yeah. with Gamer. Yeah, and and obviously we do take suggestions because yes. we're doing Futurama. Yeah, a good way to give us suggestions is through our Discord, which you get to become a member of if you're a patron. That was some good if then causal logic there. <laughs> yes. yes. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Yes. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash space the nation. There are other ways you can support us, Dan. Do you do you have any ideas? Sure. So like if you go to the middle of your town square and have a <laughs> sign that just says space the nation is awesome, that is another way of helping us. I don't think it's a terribly effective way of helping us. So in terms of effective ways of helping us, perhaps you can, you know like uh or rate our show that's always welcome you know you can spread word of mouth uh you know through you can tweet about us you can tweet at us that's true definitely if you tweet at us about the show we will probably respond we see it we definitely see it yes we do and we celebrate it we do we retweet it yes (laughs) do we sound very thirsty i am literally thirsty (laughs) so maybe that's why and I guess I, we I don't think of it, people. I don't think of it as being thirsty. I think of it as wanting to spread our gospel. But yes, there we go. There yes. we go. Yes. The, in the future, there will be a religion devoted to space the nation. <laughs> yes. Oh God, we'll be disembodied heads on it. Oh God. <laughs> let's let's save let's save that discussion for later. Let's do that. Yes. I'm just going to remind people about patronage, which is the thing that you're doing when you become a patron at Patreon.com/slash/spacethenation. Should you become a patron, you get early access to our episodes. You get to participate in our monthly A UAs, which I finally got in the habit of saying us. Mm-hmm. Ask us anything. Yes. And there is this sort of theoretical idea of merchandise. Yeah. That someday. We will will it into existence. We have a paradigm based on merchandise, and, and yes. I believe that that paradigm will come to fruition. Yes. All right. Well, before we get started, mm-hmm. Dan. Yes. How are you? I am good, Anna. I just got back from Rome. <laughs> I, I went there. I like the way when we texted about this, you were like, I'm so sorry I'm in Rome. Yes, <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I, I was know. not sorry about I that am, text. <laughs> I, you know, I, I hate to cause us trouble, but I'm in Rome. <laughs> That was, yes, I know, I know. This is the end of my many travels, though, I do promise that. Okay. But that said... Not um, the end of me hearing about them, I'm That's sure, true. But... <laughs> I'm going to try to find a way. I think for the entire rest of this like calendar year, I'm going to somehow see if I can find a way to work in, oh, yes, when I was in Polynesia or London or, or whatever, but, you know. So. <laughs> Point is, I was in Rome, and I had a great time. I ate very, very well. I fattened myself up, and more importantly, I got back in time to take a shower before we could record. And I know that sounds weird, but, like... My belief, if you've been on a long travel 
stint is that showering in your own house makes a difference. I don't know. Like, that's my secret to that. I don't know. If I yeah, think. no, that makes sense. I mean, it, I, I feel like there is it's not even metaphorical dust of the road. Yeah. I mean, airplanes are fucking filthy. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's just it, they're gross ways. I, they, you know, they're very useful. There, but like, There's the miracle of flight. Yes. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. I appreciate that. And, yes. and also I appreciate airline crews. They do the best they can. They do. This but, is not a knock on them. It's just they're trying to get as many people from point A to point B. And as a result, you kind of feel like a sardine. How are you, Anna? I'm, I'm doing okay. I can't think of any specific reason why I should be doing better than usual. <laughs> I am celebrating. Oh, well, you know what, Dan? Actually, I can tell you why. I got my first book advance check. <gasps> oh, bravo. Oh, yeah. that's a good day. It is a good day. Although, I don't know about you, but I looked at it and I was like, how am I going to make this last? Like, I was. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a huge chunk of money, not going to lie. But the responsibility... <laughs> so- of making it last. Is... It's adorable that you think that any book advance I ever got could I could ever live on. <laughs> I, I have to say that's actually might be the highest compliment you've ever paid for me. Um, I do. I have gotten book advances to be very clear. I, I actually did get one like moderately healthy one, but nowhere in the range of what I'm, if I vaguely recall what you got, because I write university press books. And, that's and true. That's it's, true. It's not anyway, I got my that. book advance. That's good. Which made me feel very flushed. It's going to be an interesting exercise in behavioral psychology to make this last for right. as long as I need it to last. But right. I'm celebrating by getting my backyard resodded because when I, I keep on saying I killed the lawn. No, global warming killed the lawn. Yeah, I think climate change, which, you know... The, <laughs> Yes. And yes. and it's weird, you know, and this was like a once every couple decades drought we had down here, yeah. which was combined with, you know, 100 degree temperatures. My front lawn, I have a, I actually have a hundred year old cottonwood tree in my front yard. Wow. It, it is gorgeous. Every time anyone comes to do the lawn or anything, they're always like, wow, that's a great tree. And it is tearing up my driveway, mm-hmm. but it's a great tree. It shades the front of my house. So I have... You know, I actually am very fairly cool. I don't have a problem with air conditioning in the summer, and the grass stays alive. However, my backyard just bakes in the sun. So I decided to just go ahead and bite the bullet, and for you know Exley's sake, for the good of the dog, I'm, for the good of the dog, people are like, why don't you do something else so you don't have to water it? And it's true, I am going to have an impact on my environment by watering, but. I don't know. Like I, I use it. Actually, I, this is very dorky. I actually track my water usage. Oh, and I use Al way Gore less. would be proud of you, Anna. <laughs> I use way less personally than almost. It's in like the bottom quartile. This and is so why you're already. Th- this is why you're always thirsty, Anna. Now I've. Now I realize. <laughs> it is why I'm always thirsty, Dan. There it is <laughs> that, and I got divorced. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Well, we should move on to why we are doing this. We should move on. I am hot and thirsty, and it only has a little bit to do with the environment. Let's talk about Futurama, Dan. Indeed. So why are we doing this? Well, this is basically a shameless effort to please the patrons. Um, (laughs) It might might fail. Yes. And and I'm going to apologize in advance to the patrons because I don't know if our reaction is going to track what you were expecting it to be. I believe we talked about Futurama at some point during our Mm -hmm. hot sci-fi summer. 
uh, episodes, and that got the Discord a chatting, and we were like, okay, sure, we should do a Futurama episode, and of course the question was, like, how many episodes could you do, and the patrons got together and selected three and asked us to pick the fourth one, and I did so, and this is what we're going to talk about. Yep, and it, and Dan, no one loves our listeners more than me, except <laughs> perhaps you. <laughs> yes. I would do almost anything for our listners. <laughs> I really wish that I hadn't had to watch this show. And it's, oh. and, and That's the again, B side of Meatloaf's, by the way. I would do anything for love, I believe. Actually. But, yeah. <laughs> I would do anything except watch this show. Yes. <laughs> and I, I guess I want to put people a little bit ease, or maybe not, because this is the worst case scenario, which is just I just didn't find this show that interesting. Right. To be clear, I don't think uh, neither Honor and I hated it. And I, no. think, I, I think I liked it better than you for one reason. You, know, uh, you have a Y chromosome. I think I liked it better than you for two reasons. <laughs> One being that, yes, I'm a man and, and we'll get to this. The other, be- that I'm a professor and Professor Farnsworth yes. is a great character. And I have to admit, I did like the, the geeky academic humor. So I, I enjoyed that a little bit more. But there's a, there's a lot of geeky academic humor. That's is. not what's wrong with it. No, it's I not. Mean, that's, that's nothing, good. The weird thing is that there's, there's, it's going to be t- difficult to say what's wrong with it. Exactly. No, to paraphrase The Simpsons, it's a perfectly cromulent show. Yes, it is totally cromulent. Yes. You know, we usually do a Chekhov's "What's It" at this yeah. point in the in the broadcast. This time, I, I don't think that's applicable. It doesn't really work in this case, yeah, particularly because so we're talking about four different episodes. We're, we're talking about four discrete episodes, so yeah. no Chekhov's "What's It." Mm-hmm. However, there is mm-hmm. the story behind the story. Oh, Anna, do tell. I believe okay. I believe that there was this previous animated show that was related to this animated show. I don't know. There is a show that this is kind of sprung from the same mind. It's a okay. little show called The Simpsons. Oh, okay. Sort of obscure. Yeah. But you may I've, have heard of it. Uh, you know, I vaguely recall it, yeah. This show has been around not as long as The Simpsons, which is, what, 30 years old at this point? 32, yeah. 32. Uh, but it started in 1999. Mm-hmm. You can't kill it. This is a zombie show. <laughs> uh, it was indeed started by Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, and it aired on Fox from 1999 to 2003. It was on Comedy Central from 2003 to 2007. In 2007, it was revived as four direct-to-video films. <laughs> oh, God, really? Wow, okay. <laughs> and the last one appeared in 2009. It was okay. brought back to Comedy Central in 2010 through 2013. Wow. There was an audio-only episode... On the Nerdist podcast in 2017. Uh-huh. And there's a new season coming to Hulu in 2023. Holy crap. Okay. This is the show that would not die. This show will not die. <laughs> it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to stick around in some form probably until the year 3000, I guess. Uh, Graining is, is pretty proud of the show. You know, the Fox asked for it. They wanted something sort of like The Simpsons. And he gave them Futurama, the idea for it. And they had notes. <laughs> and he said, I won't take... I'm, I'm summarizing here, paraphrasing. Yeah. He said, I won't take your notes because that is one of the things about The Simpsons. I don't know if you knew that. It's kind of sort of an infamous mm-hmm. piece of uh, lore that he somehow got Fox to not Give mess notes. with The Simpsons. Wow, yeah. that is impressive given... Yes. And- so actually, two things happened. One is he said, you let me do with The Simpsons. Why can't I do it with this? And the other thing that happened, he was like, well, do you want to see what it looks like if I take your notes? <laughs> and so they they did an episode strictly conforming to what Fox wanted them to do, and they hated it. So. <laughs> Fair enough. His 
goal was to make a goofy comedy that would under have underlying legitimate literary science fiction concepts. Meh. It's Question goofy. Mark, I think it's goofy. It, it, it meets the goofy <laughs> standard. I'm not. It is definitely know. goofy. Yeah. It is definitely goofy. This is a quote from Wikipedia, which I really love. Yes. The series developed a cult following, partially due to the large number of in jokes it contains, most of which are aimed at quote nerds. <laughs> Whatever oh. Wikipedia editor did that, bravo. Bravo <laughs> to you. Because there's also a site for that. <laughs> of course there is. There's a couple of interesting review essays about it. One of them made this note. If The Simpsons is essentially about family, Futurama is fundamentally about work, centering on the tension between responsibility and leisure. I will note here that that's an interesting idea that I did not see. <laughs> so, it might be, it, to be fair, it might be the, ep- I mean, yep. we only did look at these four episodes. We only episodes, did four so, episodes. You know, I, yeah. I totally, yes, yes, yes. I completely mm-hmm. grant that. And then there's a review essay by Frank Lovelace, who's a critic. That I'm, I'm, this is, love your feedback on. Okay. Quote, Futurama, conversely, stems from the Jewish-American strain of humor. Not just in the obvious archetype of Dr. Zoidberg. Mm-hmm. From vaudeville to the Catskills to Woody Allen, it's the distinctly rueful humor built to ward away everything from despair to petty annoyance. The you-gotta-do-what-you-gotta-do philosophy that helps true trauma characters cope in a mega-corporate world where the little guy is essentially powerless. That's think? not the worst description of the show, actually. That, yeah, that I'm not entirely sure that's uniquely Jewish, to be fair. But um, I, 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 that's sort of the thing that I was. That was the part that I'm like, <laughs> not. I'm like, that's that. That's genre. That's not Judaism. I mean, you know. I mean, but and also, yeah. So, but yeah, it, I, it, okay. it is a good description of the show. It, yeah, it, it is. is. Yes. And and I will also say again here that. If we had watched more of the show, I might have found a more robust criticism of capitalism and this idea of the tension between work and leisure, which is something interesting to me and something we've talked about regarding a few topics, shows and movies that we've covered. I just didn't, you know, I just didn't really see it. And also, there was the big problem of me being bored. So... Oh, 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 that's the worst thing you can say on it. I know, I know, I know, I know. So it has won several awards for animation. Um, Annie's, which is an animated Mm -hmm. award of some kind. It is. I I will say this. I don't know quite how they do it, but watching the ship fly on this show actually is somewhat hypnotic. Like the animation Mm -hmm. is really nice that way. I did like that. It has won Emmys for Outstanding Animated Program and Outstanding Individual Achievement in Animation and has won uh, awards from the WGA and Environmental Groups, which is not that surprising. Especially given the show we will talk about, yes. That is that is correct. And I am going to bring back IP as a flat circle. I haven't done it uh, recently, <laughs> but I like saying it, and it's also interesting to me. So there's the four movies Bender's Big Score, The Beast with a Billion Backs, Bender's Game, which I kind of want to see based on the title for some yeah reason. that's a good title <laughs> I, I like that if it's at all a parody of ender's game i could be I, that would actually be tempting yes okay might have to and watch also that. the wild green yonder uh, there is a video game actually three video games there is a console video game and two mobile games and i don't play games and neither do you but i kind of feel confident that these aren't very good because <laughs> how would you do a video game based on this show you know like i 
I, yeah, that there would are be... no epic quests. <laughs> well, they made a video game of The Simpsons, didn't they? I mean, you know, which, and that's, that's true. So I, I, I I'm, I'm just saying it's possible. And then a piece of trivia, Dan. Oh yes, yes, huh? On the writing staff of this show, mm-hmm. three PhDs, <laughs> seven master's degrees, and quote more than a half century of Harvard education. So, Dan, how can it not be great? Really? What have Harvard? What, what, get what a bunch of Harvard, Harvard edu- people you together. You get a bunch of Harvard people together, and you know what? You're going to see something amazing. You're going okay. to see something that has no self-consciousness whatsoever. It's going to be completely <laughs> earnest, very uh, generous, you know, in its humor. <laughs> and diverse, very diverse. And diverse, and totally yes. diverse, yes. indeed. Yes. I also want to mention that um, one of the staff writers in the show, I think a longtime staff writer, is Bill Odenkirk, who's, who is Bob Odenkirk's brother. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I am a huge Bob Odenkirk fan someday. Somebody asked me at the interview I did with him, Dan, because it was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Um, My favorite, one of my favorite celebrity interviews ever. I think in part, I will say, because we were at the time he was going to do an adaptation of David Carr's The Night of the Gun. Oh, and I know you you love David Carr, obviously. So yes, close was a fairly close friend of mine. He was, although I'll say he had a lot of close friends. He was that kind of guy. Like he could just make a connection with people pretty fast. Hmm. And since that hasn't ever been made i guess <laughs> i hope someone does make that because i know the premise I, of the book and like that does seem like an interesting thing to do i think it could be great so he was in yeah. minneapolis i w- and and although i don't think he was in Minneapolis at that like that day that i talked to him but he's just he was just super unpretentious actually straightforward actually listened to the questions i had oh wow. great guy okay yeah yeah all right. So let's let's talk about these actors. Let's get to the episode. Let's see. Let's see what we can we can say. Let's okay. See what we can say. All right. Let's start with episode one, the one with the mash parody. This is, I believe, war is the H word. So Futurama goes to war. Fry wants the military discount when he buys his ham flavored gum. So he and Bender enlist on a whim and plan to drop out once they get their discount card. But darn it, war is declared on Spheron One. Lilo wants to enlist, but women can't seem to enlist for some reason in the year 3000 because apparently it didn't work out. I'm not even going to go there. They train for a whole day on the ship before arriving on the planet. Once thrown into combat, Fry freezes and hides while Bender plays the hero when confronting the enemy balls. And yes, the enemy actually is balls. (laughs) The disembodied head of Richard Nixon, who I believe governs the earth i mean we do see nixon multiple times so i'm assuming nixon is just you know the leader at this point sends bender and the head of henry kissinger to negotiate but it's a trick a bomb has been implanted in bender that will destroy the planet if he says his favorite word which is ass (laughs) fry gets to play the hero and save the day and inform bender about what's going on and bender gets to play the madman and get the balls to leave spheroid one Along the way, there are homages to Starship Troopers, Star Wars, and most importantly, MASH. Anna, I have a guilty confession, which is the things that make me laugh the hardest in either Simpsons or Futurama episodes are the dumb sight gags. So my favorite moment in this episode, hands down, was the sign outside the recruiting office of the Army, where the sign says, join the Army. What are you, chicken? Buck, buck, buck. And I, I I actually did think that was funny. Yeah, you laughed right there. Yes, I did. Telling us about it. It was legitimately yeah. funny. That and Fry hitting the ground just as he pulled his chute. Did anything work for you? There we go, yes. So as someone old enough to remember watching MASH, and mm-hmm. I vividly remember watching the last MASH episode. Yes. 
So I remember both how great and insufferable it was. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was both genuinely amazing writing, acting, comedy, etc. And so fucking like... Full of uh, itself. Full of itself, especially towards the end. Yeah. Uh, Alan Alda seems to have developed a sense of humor about himself since doing the show, but... But did not have a sense of humor about himself as that show was ending. No, 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 no. So I appreciated that, like the operating room scenes and maybe those not old enough. MASH was kind of famous for it. It had a laugh track outside the OR, mm-hmm. but not inside the OR. There's this big, big distinction. I think that's kind of funny that they kind of paid homage to that. Yeah. Another weird thing about about this episode that makes it dated, Dan, is that the commanding officer has kind of a panicky feeling about whether or not he's gay. Right. So Leela, because she's not allowed to serve as a woman, you know, dresses as a man and, you know, is a great super soldier. And of course, the general guy who's a recurring character, I can't remember what his name is, like, I want to say Dash Riprock, and I know that's not it. It's something, he's that guy. (laughs) Along those lines. Clearly still attracted to her and very sexually Ha ha, he might be gay. Ha ha ha, he might be gay. Which also indicates, you know, that this was written in a time before gay people could serve openly in the military. So the whole thing feels kind of dated. Mm -hmm. I appreciated the homages. Yeah. I think, maybe we'll do our discussion about what doesn't work about this show in parts, but because one of the things that I think stands out to me about the show is that it feels like it wants to get to the homages. You know what I mean? Like, And so as a result, it doesn't quite do the work in terms of like the plotting and the themes yeah, and so on. Yeah, and so like, forth. Let's, like it's like they came up with the idea for the homages first mm. and then like string together a plot. I mean, I know that's probably not exactly right. Yeah. But it's, it feels like that. And... Let- I will it say, feel the yeah. sight gags actually started to bother me because there's a ton of them, you know. <laughs> like, but I mean, it's let me just, ask you, there's so many jokes. So I want to too many jokes, too I, many jokes. Let me ask you a jokes. slightly different question on this, which is to say, would you feel the same way about a Simpsons episode, like during peak Simpsons? We're not talking about what's going on now, which is I'm sure fine, but like you know, when when you and I both watch the Simpsons, my memory is that it was was it all that different? I mean, like so, like this is the thing I'm curious about. Well, I think the thing that's different, and I don't, there's a, one of the problems here might be, and this is sort of the buckaroo bonsai problem, which is the age at which you get exposed to this and the mm. climate of the culture at which you get exposed. Because when I started watching The Simpsons, I was in high school. Right. And I mean, I had a pretty sophisticated sense of humor for my age, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I have no doubt. But, you know, it wasn't all that sophisticated. I was still pretty much, I think, I, I, The Simpsons definitely is targeted at adolescence. I mean, yes. it is. It's an ad- well, and, it's it's, a cl- it's classic adolescent humor in the sense of it's a combination of something that is at times extremely witty and at other times is a football to the groin. That is true. But the thing that I was thinking about as I watched this show mm-hmm. was that despite the fact that The Simpsons is laugh a minute, has a lot of gags, a lot of things in the background – the characters feel more like characters, but maybe mm. that's just because I know them so well. I don't know. Like, there's no Lisa in this show. Yeah, I think like, you're right. Like, Leela yeah. is not Lisa. She's no. not as drawn. Again, four episodes, so maybe, I don't know. But, like, Lisa is, like, one, is one of my favorite, like, characters probably of all-time fictional characters. Mm-hmm. Like, I identify with Lisa <laughs> so much. <laughs> 
There was an episode where teachers went on strike, mm -hmm. and uh, Lisa had a nervous breakdown because she wasn't getting graded. <laughs> <laughs> and she starts having a panic attack, like, in the living room. She's, like, pacing around, and she's yeah. like, I need to be graded, I need to be graded, I need to be graded. And um, Marge, like, takes a piece of paper and draws an A on it and holds it up, and Lisa's like... Whew. That's okay. the stuff, yes. <laughs> and I, I, that, oh boy. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I just didn't feel that. No, and that's fair. Show. That, that, you know, so. this is a, a feel thing, so absolutely fair. Um, All right. The only thing, oh, I, I did want to add that I, I also watched MASH, and I did, I thought that was the funniest of the satires, particularly the switch that the robot would make yeah. between comedy and, well, and, and Yeah, pathos. and that's yes. the OR, that's the idea yeah. that, oh, you, you don't put a laugh track in the OR, well, that's a, how... Yeah. You know, significant that is. That's also, so significant that you don't do that. Whoever did the IHOC voice, like, I actually kind of, I mean, it was before Bill Hader's I, time. Oh, IHOC, yes. IHOC yes, was yes. the name of the character, but, like, I kind of, yeah. it was before Bill Hader's time when they recorded this, but, like, Bill Hader actually does a really good Alan Alda impression, and I kind of want, like, he would crush, he would crush that. Yeah, I, I have come to like him a lot, like, I think in, in his career as an actor after mm -hmm. MASH, like, he just, he just seems like he gets it more, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but but during that show, not yeah. so much. Fair enough. The one show, well, sorry, I could go on about like the most pretentious mash episodes. <laughs> let's 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 move on. Let's move on to other pretentious. Let's Episode two, the one with the global warming. Earth is getting pretty hot, and the standard technique for deferring global warming, dropping a big chunk of ice from Halley's Comet into the ocean, can't work anymore since they've used up all that ice. Moon Emperor Al Gore convenes a conference of Earth scientists, during which Professor Farnsworth confesses that his original sports utility robot design is the problem. All robots emit as much foulness as Bender. Nixon's solution is to lure all the robots to the Galapagos and then destroy them with an EMP. Bender, resigned to his fate, goes to the island to die, in the midst of what looks like a robot orgy. Farnsworth then offers up a different solution. If all the robots vent their exhaust at the same time, they could push Earth's orbit further out a bit, lessening the climate change problem. Farnsworth's plan works when Bender, convinced he is helpless when he is on his back, sees his pet turtle get himself out of a similar situation. With Bender's help, the plan works and the robots are saved. Anna, I think I like this episode better than the war parody one for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, anything that mocks homeopathic medicine, I am down for. And there's just a very brief good gag on that. And it was just really effective. Second, I like that the scientist's first proposed solution goes horribly awry because, like, it was good that the scientists were also mocked. I think that was important. But third, because this was the only of, the, of all the episodes, I think this was the only one where I think the metaphor really worked for me well, where Bender is convinced that he's helpless. And... This is obviously a metaphor for how people feel about climate change in terms of sort of the futility thesis. And I didn't think that this was, you know, not a, uh, not just as a call for individual action, but it, it, the episode was a rejection of the ideas of helplessness and futility. What say you? I guess since there are all those Harvard people on the show, mm -hmm. I'll believe you that that was intentional. <laughs> oh, oh, you really thought that? Was, oh, come on. That was definitely intentional. It is a good metaphor. Yeah. The one thing I'll note is it, the sort of on the nose, like what would Nixon do like, <laughs> thing. Nixon started the EPA, Dan. That is true. That like, is true. I mean, and I believe the original UN conference on the environment was during the Nixon administration. Yeah, also. I mean, Nixon's such a fascinating character. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows this, but like everything you learn more about Nixon, I swear, like you will become even more interested in him. Yeah. So if you want to read a really good book about Nixon, the Gary Wills, Nixon Agonis is probably my favorite one. 
fair enough. All right. And then Rick Perlstein has a the, the Nixon oh Nixon land. land. Yes, yes. Also very good. All right, let's move on to episode three, the one with the saddest ending ever. An archaeological dig discovers Panucci's, Fry's initial place of employment back in 1999. Among other relics, they discover a fossilized Seymour, Fry's old pet dog. Professor Farnsworth, the true hero of this entire series, believes that he can clone Seymour with his memories intact. This excites Fry, but makes Bender jealous because he's worried about losing his best friend Fry. Just as the cloning process is about to start, Bender grabs the fossil and throws it into a pit of lava, believing that destroying it will restore his friendship with Fry. Of course, Fry, being a human being, is instead furious. Bender realizes what he has done and makes amends by diving into the lava and recovering the fossil before it's destroyed. Just as the cloning process is about to start, Fry learns that Seymour lived another 12 years after he, Fry, was cryogenically frozen. Thinking that Seymour must have lived a good life after he disappeared, Fry decides he doesn't want him cloned, convinced that Seymour must have found a new owner and forgotten about him. The episode ends very cruelly, revealing that Seymour hung around Panucci's for the rest of his days, waiting for Fry's return. It makes my heart hurt, Dan. I, I don't, you know, like, I, that was, I, it really was a gut punch. I mean, there's no other way to put it. That, like, last minute of this show... I was like, oh, my God, this is how you're going to end it? I was just, oh, God. That said, the funny stuff in the show, beyond all the professor jokes, I, I did like the somewhat subtle satire of museums owning artifacts and looking down a bit at all the cultures at which it owns the artifacts, at least in the beginning when Fry is trying to get a uh, like protest to get his dog. Yeah, what an ending. I am oh. not ashamed to say I teared up. It was uh, brutal. And... I thought it was like admirably brutal yeah. and, and risky. And I told you when we were texting, I thought it was kind of an earned emotion. But then upon reflection, like it's killing the dog, which you're using a lot of cultural capital there. Like it's not like you didn't earn it. Dogs earned it. Right. <laughs> But I, I, I think I think what you mean by earning it is that the sh the show this episode has a number of flashbacks to the 1999 yeah. 2000 period and you see the, first of all one of the things I You're love right. yeah. this was a minor thing but I did love it like do you, in the first scene where you see Seymour he is an incredibly scrawny dog and then the next flashback after that he's clearly like filled Fry out. is taking care yeah. of him he's he's filled out like I remember watching seeing that and think oh good the dog's good um, yeah and so you realize you know they really do have a bond but just. Like, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't think it completely coasts on the cultural capital. You're right. Like, yeah. I think that this is actually a show in which we spend a majority of our time with one character, Fry. Right. Yeah. And he gets to have a character. <laughs> he gets to, like... He gets to be a character, and he also gets to have real emotions, I think, would be the other yeah. way of putting it. That, that yeah. you know... So, weirdly, I probably liked this one the best, <sighs> even though it was such a fucking gut punch. Yes, no, like, no, well, I mean, let me put it this way. It, it, I suppose it's a credit to the show that it was a gut punch. Like, Yeah. You know. I mean, again, dogs earned it yeah. more than the, the show did. But yes, the show also earned it. Oh, yes. Poor dog. God. By, I, by the way, I will point out here, this is, I think, a trivia thing. I, I believe that in a subsequent episode, they time travel and Seymour does not face that fate. So, you know, like. The, oh. Yeah. Okay. So there is All like, right. you know. Like, like some some kind of literal retconning. There okay. is some retconning that happens, I believe, yeah. uh, with, right. with Seymour. But again, we only watched this episode and like just really just. I get so resentful at shows where people are like, "You have to stick with it." Yeah. I mean, I guess there are shows that I like that 
the well, first few episodes. I mean, come are on, the expanse took the a little best. while. To, you know, the, but the, I don't think. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess, but even the expanse, I feel like there was a spark of something. I mean, oh, yeah. Miller. Like, I oh, love yeah. meaning because I'm, I'm the you know sci-fi noir. Yeah. And, you know, you just put Miller on the screen and I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch this because you guys have Fedora. I, it's you tricky know? because the problem is, is that there really are shows where if you stick with it, it does pay out. Like Star Trek Next Generation, the first season is not great. There's no other way to put it. Um, and it got much better. Seasons are different, actually. Yeah. If you tell me to start with season two, right. I'm like, all right, OK, I know to skip all the all yeah, the yeah. stuff before it. I don't know. Like somebody, I mean, everyone tells me I should watch Shit's Creek, but I watched the first two episodes and was like, eh. And I don't know, like, I no, I, you know, that's another it. one. That was a pandemic watch for us. And I, like, sorry, I don't think I quite liked it as much as everyone else did, but I did pay off. That's the, like, it was, yeah. it was, I, mean, nice I guess there are probably some people who don't like Arrested Development because it's maybe it's sort of like a hat. You had to be there in the, in in the, the like early, early 2000s. 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. You had to be actually like a liberal in the early 2000s. <laughs> No, I was more conservative in the early 2000s, and I enjoyed it. It was, it was okay, still, okay, yeah, good. So, yeah, because uh, I think their Iraq stuff is some of the best, oh, like yeah. cultural criticism <laughs> to come out of that era. Yeah, so good, yeah. solid like a rock. <laughs> All right, let's All right. let's move on to the last episode, the one with this the Star Trek. This show features me singing twice. Ooh, so far, this is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is quality content. It's a high. I, <laughs> it's I, a you know, the painters might not be thrilled high. with your take, but. Oh, sing all time hot. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all right. But but there's been singing. Let's go to the last episode, the one with the Star Trek homage. The crew is facing a court martial after visiting the forbidden planet Omega-3. It turns out that Star Trek was banned in the 23rd century when its fandom got obsessed with it to the point of becoming a religion and governments put an end to these Star Trek wars. Fry takes Leonard Nimoy from the Head Museum and convinces Bender and Leela to join him in a mission to recover the tapes. On Omega-3, they discover that the rest of the cast has been restored with their bodies due to the benevolent energy being Melvar, that's with three L's, uh, who has become a Trek superfan from watching the tapes. Melvar gives Nimoy a body and orders everyone to participate in a Star Trek convention that will last until the end of time. The Planet Express crew escapes, but Fry convinces them to go back and free the actors. This backfires badly as Melvar destroys their ship and pits the Star Trek cast against the Futurama cast to decide which group is more worthy of adoration. Fortunately, Melvar's mother appears and takes him home for dinner. The two groups combine forces to jerry-rig a ship and escape. With Melvar in hot pursuit, Zap Brannigan, that's the, the... That's the guy. That's the guy. Boards their ship and convenes a court-martial for trespassing on Omega-3. At this point, Leela exposits that they're still being pursued while being court-martialed. Uh, that's fun. That was funny. That was that a good was, gag, yes. That was funny. Fry goes to the bridge, convinces Melvar to stop obsessing about Star Trek, allowing everyone to return to Earth. Anna, this episode had very little IR in it, but was <laughs> jam-packed with classic Star Trek lines. And what I thought was a decent, you know, pretty prescient critique of fandom. Uh, would you agree or no? I mean, I mean, talk about coasting on previously earned cultural capital. Yeah. Uh, and also Adorno bait. Um, <laughs> I am enough of a Trek fan that I appreciate the fact that the whole episode is a reference, right? They like, packed so many classic Star Trek lines into this and, episode. And that even was impressive. the plot of the episode yes. is is a reference inside a reference inside yeah. a reference inside a reference. Yeah. You know, what we were talking about before we started taping is whether or not this was a prescient critique of fan culture. And... So the reason I was thinking it was prescient is that this isn't just the case of a super fan, you know, 
acting a little crazy, it's a super fan actually winding up being somewhat malevolent. And in some ways, it's about the curdling of fan bases. That's that's how I was thinking. Because I think I think at the time this episode came out, there was gentle satire of fan bases. But like, if you think about Galaxy Quest, the whole point of Galaxy Quest was that it actually both satirizes Star Trek, but also points out all the things that makes it great. Whereas this sort of did that, but like the whole Melvar thing actually pointed out, mm, you know what? You can go way too far with this, and it can. Yeah, the Black Mirror problem. episode is so much better. That's true. We um, really do have to do the Callister episode. Yeah, yeah. That it's it's such a better take on this. Like the Cal- you know what the thing with Black Mirror for me though is like I can barely watch it. It's so disturbing. Well, like Cal, I think the Callister episode is a rare example of uh, an episode that I think it is watchable. Like there, I've watched. Yeah, you're them, right. It is watchable. It has a balance. But yeah. some of those episodes, like I, I will oh. never watch again. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh God, no. I'm like. That was great. Never watching it again. Oh, absolutely. Ever. No, no, no. The one with the robot dogs, never watching that again. Oh, no. my God. No, 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 no. No. no, no, no. no. Oh, ah. Yeah. The one with John Hamm. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I forgot about that one. Wow. That's, yeah. No, leave it this way. It's to the point where I, like, I watch it for a couple of seasons. I haven't watched any of the more recent episodes because I'm just. Yes, neither have I. I it, neither it's have just I. too much for me. Yeah. I, I, tip of the hat, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it is great television. And if you can stand it, you go, but I will, I will watch The Office over and over and over, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to watch any Black Mirror. Anyway, is it prescient in its critique of toxic fan culture? Yes, that's what I was thinking. It wasn't so much fan bases, but toxic fan bases. Except, but- well, yes and no. Like, I mean, I feel like is it? Are you know? There's all those Harvard degrees, so maybe that was was very very intentional. Except that the part about the toxic fandom is a reference to a Star Trek episode, right? Like yeah. where the the guy. There's actually like two episodes that are somewhat you know, creatures that make the humans their playthings. Right. There's the one with the the Roman gods, and then there's the Squire of Gothos, which yeah. is the one that this is most which, clearly copied from. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I maybe that was a completely intentional thing about fan culture. I mean, I do think there's an interesting critique of capitalism to be had and critiques of convention culture. I am waiting for that to come out. That will be very interesting when someone sort of gets it together mm-hmm. to be like, this is like an economy unto itself, right? Like yeah, all these conventions. That's true. I don't know. Like this one was probably my second least favorite. <laughs> This game came in third. No, second. I guess also go ahead and say I was trying to be clever. This one was the one I second most didn't mind. <laughs> in other words, you didn't hate this episode. I didn't hate it. This is I, this second second less hated. Ada gives this one a thumb in the forty-five degree angle. <laughs> That's right, uh, Dan. We have a new segment. We do. It is called discordant notes. <laughs> These are questions from our Discord members. I plucked a few of these. Some of them uh, related to things that we cannot answer because we have not seen in as as much of the show as you would need right. to. And I, but, we should uh, stress, by the way, at this point, neither you nor I have watched much of this beyond these episodes. I think I watched. Oh them. God, none. These I are watched, the only only. These are the oh no, I, I watched seen. the pilot, and I probably watched one or two other episodes. But but no, it's been like at least fifteen years since I saw a few right. episodes. So. Uh, Number one, this is a great question for you, Dan. These are actually, uh-huh. these are very Dan-centric questions. Okay. Happy for it. Why do you think Henry Kissinger has managed to avoid becoming a pariah in Washington despite his genuinely monstrous behavior? It says in office, but I assume they mean 
like in administrations. I think what he means is while while he was Secretary of State and National Security. Yeah, well, okay, while he was Secretary of State. Yeah. Uh, and relatedly, who in our current time period do you think would be the most likely to cling to head-based immortality if given the chance? Well, okay, I'll answer the second question first. It's Trump. I mean, that's the most obvious. Oh my God, you're so right. It's the yes, obvious. Yes, yes. And it's, then Ted Cruz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, definitely Trump would do it. I will say, I, when I was watching the war episode, I was like, why are they treating Henry Kissinger? Like Henry, they didn't, there was no mockery of Henry Agreed. Kissinger whatsoever. And I was like, what the fuck is going on with this? Like, you know, Kissinger is a, is ripe for. He's a war criminal. <laughs> he's ripe for mockery. <laughs> I, I was waiting for the Cambodia reference. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, like, like, that, there could have been some really dark jokes at that point. Yeah, That's all I'm yeah. saying. So I think, how to put this, I guess the answer on, on Kissinger, there's a couple of things. The first is, is that Kissinger did a lot of monstrous things. Kissinger also did some interesting things and like genuinely, <laughs> no, I, I, you know. No, I agree. You know, interesting op- is a great word. Okay. Interesting is a great word. But the you know, the opening to China, you know, the detente with the Soviet Union, these are not minor, you know, things in in the annals of US diplomacy. I'm not saying he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize because he certainly does not. But like it, Kissinger as you said Nixon is a complex figure. Kissinger is also a legitimately complex figure. And by the way, if you think that it was Kissinger who did only the monstrous stuff, Rest assured, it was Nixon who was. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, let's be very sure. clear. And so, like you know, you you really do have to treat them as a as a package deal. So I think part of it is that you know it's it's not just the odious stuff with Kissinger. That said, the other reason is that Kissinger so assiduously made himself relevant to Kiss every his ass. Yes, Kiss- <laughs> Kissinger actually, in this sense, Kissinger really did break the mold. Um, he was legitimately innovative in terms of his post secretary of state career, although not necessarily in a great way, which is instead of like going to a think tank or going to a university or write, you know, just writing his memoirs, Kissinger decided to make money. And so he became, he, he sort of formed the first consultancy that, you know, now like is Albright Stonebridge or, you know, any of these other, uh, Rice Hadley Gates, they're all, you know, originally got inspired by, by Kissinger on this. And so as a result, you know, Kissinger's got ties everywhere, and he talks to a lot of people, and so therefore, even presidents have found it occasionally useful to and talk he, to he, him. And he's incredibly good at flattering people in power. Oh, yeah, he sucks up to power like no one. Like, that is just, like one of... Oh, he's so good at it. It, it is, like, almost admirable, mm-hmm. really. I recommend, uh, I know some of our listeners are already behind the bastards uh, listeners, but there is a, I think, wow, like four-part one on Henry Kissinger that... I didn't need to hear in order to hate him, but if you want some details, uh, it's a very good podcast series. If you want another, so I, I, I guess one reading suggestion at this point, if you really want to see Kissinger at his worst and most bigoted, there's no other way to put it, read Gary Bass's The Blood Telegram. It's a fantastic book on how the U.S. responded to uh, the 1971 Indo-Pakistani War, in which you know, both Nixon and Kissinger turned out to be incredibly misogynistic towards Indira Gandhi, just had utterly stereotypical, bigoted views about South Asia, and as a result, ignored warnings from foreign service officers about a potential genocide. So, yeah, that's that's a it's a good thing to read. <laughs> Next question. You figure becoming the first emperor of the moon was a politically savvy choice for Futurama's Al Gore? 
building his own democracy, question mark, uh, on the moon with blackjack, etc. I assume that that Al Gore's moon actually might be a little bit like the moon is a harsh mistress. There's like, I mean, it sounds <laughs> there's blackjack and gambling. Yes. I mean, we haven't watched quite enough to see, but I, I was, I know this is a very Dan question, I think. My, I don't think Al Gore would make a good emperor. My answer is so cruel, Anna, which is Al Gore won something? Okay. <laughs> okay. That's very funny. Although Emperor, you know. Emperor implies you took it by force. That's true. Emperor implies you took it by force. Al Gore took something by force? Al Gore, exactly. That also works. That also works. That's very Al funny. Al Gore fought for himself? Question. Wait, <laughs> Al Gore served in Vietnam. Don't forget that, you know, as right, a reporter. As a reporter, Anna. Yes, yes. Exactly. Like, there, uh, that, that also works, yes. <laughs> And, and you know, it, all... it's not fair, actually, because Al Gore was actually right about a fair number of things. No, so, yes, yes, You know, yes. like, I, but... I, yeah. He's one of my favorite not uh, candidates. Unsuccessful candidates, yes. Yeah, my favorite unsuccessful candidates. Yes. This actually is a great segue to the next series of questions I have. Dan. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this show? I'm a professor, Anna. Why isn't anyone listening to me? I'm literally angry with rage. Oh, wait. You did ask me a question. You are listening to me. Sorry, let me let me back down a little bit. Yes, there is IR in this show, or rather some satire of U.S. foreign policy in this show. Uh, <laughs> so they mock a lot of hoary cliches about American foreign policy on this show. You know, the thing I like the best about the war episode, which I really actually wish they'd kind of developed even further, was the idea that there was U.S. military adventurism without knowing much about where the adventure was occurring. Like, they made it very clear their invasion of Spheroid 1 was, like, completely ill-thought-out. And furthermore, you know, wound up evicting the balls from their home planet, and they didn't even realize that. In some ways, this was prescient, given what happens a few years later. So to be fair, like, in some ways, this might feel dated because we've seen a lot of, like, satires on the Iraq War. But actually, this was ahead of its time in that sense. So I, I think now that I think about it, it gets more props. They also talk, basically have the madman theory of negotiating, which is consistent with Nixon. Nixon was the one who, who popularized the madman theory, the idea that if you're a personal, you know, if you act crazy personally, that your opponents will give in to you because they're worried that you will do something really, really out there, even if How's it goes work, against Dan? your self-interest. How's that go? It goes horribly, Anna. Yeah. It, the madman theory <laughs> never works. We're seeing Putin try it now. I really don't think it's going to work this time either, unfortunately, which is, not unfortunately, I don't think it's going to work. My worry is that he's going to really try as as much as you can. Um, the thing about the madman theory is yeah. that you have to be a madman, right? Like you uh, you have like to credibly order, you, the problem you have, to cred- you have to credibly present yourself as a madman. <laughs> yeah, it it doesn't work That's very right. well. It, yeah. um and well, has, yeah. it, 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 like cuz eventually you might have to do something mad. That's the thing, right? Like Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And of, I think people understand. Yes. We have a smart listenership. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> and they do mock uh, people having their heads in the sand or believing that they're helpless about climate change. I think what's interesting to me is that while Futurama is set a thousand years ahead of time, it seems to me very much like a period piece. Futurama is about the late 90s and early 2000s, during a time when the U.S. is the unparalleled hegemon. I think this comes out in two ways. First, the issues that they do occasionally address, as you point out, are dated. The women in combat thing seems so, you know, tired at this point. But in some ways, it's also perfect for a sitcom because if you're that powerful a hegemon, the mistakes you make repeatedly don't upset the short-term status quo. And that was true for U.S. blunders 
in the early 2000s, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah. It is true. It's when we got to 2008, 2009 that people were like, what in the fuck are we doing? Yep. <laughs> like- yep. So, like, it, this, is a sh- this is a show that very much feels... The episodes that we watched very much had the feel of early 2000s. <gasps> like, that, I'd forgotten that period. And so that, in, in some ways... Uh, says more about the the IR and the show than anything. It's the else. proud to be American era, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so Anna. Uh, yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this show? Oh, Dan, just freeze me and wake me in a thousand <laughs> years. By then, maybe I will have the patience to watch all of the episodes <laughs> and see if there's a critique. Of, I mean, this was made by. 50 years worth of Harvard, Dan. That's there is there are 50 years of Ivy League education behind this show. So it is self-aware. Yes. It is snarky. Mm-hmm. It is ironic. Mm-hmm. These people have all read probably, you know, Earth in the Balance among others, but yeah. Yeah. So I am sure there's shit going on and I, I I'm very intrigued by the essay <laughs> that mentioned it's critique of the work versus leisure balance question mark. Mm-hmm. The fact that I feel like I'd have to watch more of the show to get to that is not great. I think that the probably, you know, the strongest critique of capitalism is that it keeps getting renewed, right? Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> despite the fact that it's very much a cult audience, mm-hmm. it's a powerful cult audience, I guess. I was thinking that a good log line for the show is the Simpsons. But with more Harvard. <laughs> How would you like your Simpsons with a little more Harvard? Have you ever watched The Simpsons and think, you know, there should be even more Harvard in this show. <laughs> Have we got the show for you. All right. Wait. Oh. <laughs> I think we're crashing into a screen or something. Yes. <laughs> Dan, this is the debris field where you talk about the stuff we didn't already get a chance to talk about. There might be a lot uh, this time. Mm. I don't know. This is one of those where I'm like, I can't believe, I don't say I can't believe there's more. I'm sure that there's more because there's jokes, 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 jokes. Anyway, Dan. So first of all, the jokes, there were, there were some that made me laugh out loud i think a few more than you uh than you first was sex lexia which i don't know why like you know the idea of a sexy learning disability was very amusing um the cod it is actually that is i it, it's a yeah. good and also the way his assistant says it was also very sex lexia yes it, it was it, i like the assistant um character the cod pieces of federal reserve chairman really like that was the only that, that might have been the loudest laugh i had watching this that was a good good bit i did also like the 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 short film they showed and actually this is the one moment where i really thought it was actually close to the simpsons in terms of what it felt like because that was a, that's a classic simpsons move to show like a a film to explain to the kids what's going on where they show climate change where the greenhouse gases are a gang that i i did think that was very amusing how is there not a conservative outlet right now called the daily growl that that like i saw that and like oh god you know Tucker Carlson's going to create a spinoff doing that. And then the other thing was, is that again, as I said, it was, it, the show felt very dated and you know, it's been 20 years, but I like, I wonder if the later ones do. I mean, it, yeah. it was being made up through the mid, you know, teens. 
Yeah, and I wonder so, if it'll change after that. Like, you know, like there was third millennium blockbuster. That was the one that like really stood out to me in the Star Trek episode. You see them like at essentially a third millennium blockbuster, yeah, uh, looking to rent yeah, stuff. Yeah, and do are they renting tapes? They're yeah, renting tapes. They look like they were renting yeah. tapes actually. Which are, I mean, you would think it would be DVDs at that point, if nothing else. But um, yeah. but yeah, that was just very very uh, very odd. Yeah, to not odd. even unless that was a joke. I mean, part of me is like. Is the stuff that wasn't funny just too smart for me? <laughs> well, I you didn't know. go to Harvard. I didn't Anna. go to Harvard. You didn't go to Harvard, Anna. Okay, you just yeah. went to the University of Chicago. A yeah. real it's like a, it's a safety. A, school. It's a safety school, you know. <laughs> you know. So don't get me started on this. Yeah, um, but that's pretty much it. As I said, I it wasn't that the show was bad. Like I I no. I, I no. laughed a number of times in, in each of the episodes, but I didn't quite laugh as much as I did when I watched you know Peak Simpsons, and it wasn't quite. Just interesting enough, I guess. Agreed. All right, what about you, Anna? I laughed out loud, I think, twice. One was the cod pieces joke. That was it, good. It, you know what it is? It's just the idea of Federal <laughs> Reserve Chairman wearing cod pieces. It's just a great yes. joke. I, yes. I mean, it's 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 a well conceived phrase like that. That it's a well conceived phrase. Yeah, yeah. And then this line: "This part of the hustle implores the gods for a favor, usually a trans am." <laughs> I yes. thought that was very funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's because it's it, that is you're right. Like in the terrible heart rending dog, dog episode, episode, yes. The critiques of museumism, yeah, I guess you could call it, are good. And mm-hmm. and the way that Leela says that line is pretty great. Yes, that was good. So, I think that's about it, Dan. I I hope our our patrons can forgive us for not loving this as much as as they have to be clear we didn't hate it we just very clear did not hate it did not hate it probably will never watch it again (laughs) i mean you know harvard people aren't stupid there was there was some quality that was there's a lot going on there and i think also like i said it it reminds me a little bit of buckaroo bonsai in Mm. that because what you were you said like you love you still love Buckaroo Banzai, I and did. I yeah. did not love it. And I didn't quite hate it either. That's what's sort of weird for me. Like, I kind of wished I hated it more mm-hmm. than it would have been fun. Anyway, yeah. but one of the things you said when we did that episode was that you watched it at a very pivotal time in your life. Yeah, that's it's, true. You know, uh, and it, you had the, your brother and you yes. were into it. Yeah, yeah. And I can see the show having a place in people's lives like that. Similarly, yes. No. And so we apologize to all, I guess, 40-somethings now who were teenagers or in their early 20s when they were watching Futurama. You know, we, you know, we're just a little bit older than you and and <laughs> we just didn't quite hit just us the same bit, way. A little yeah. bit, a little yeah. bit older. But I'm it's going to say- It's amazing, like, how much of a difference five years makes, actually. Yeah. And, like, cultural touchdowns. That's true. But as I said, like, I, I will say this. I got a better, like, I'd forgotten some things about the early 2000s. As I, and watching the show, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, right. That was a thing. Okay, yeah. Go yeah. watch some Arrested Development, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So next month, we Butler have- Butler <laughs> Butler Vember, uh, to be followed in January with Cold Sci-Fi Winter. Right. And then I'm not sure what we're doing in December. We like, have I some few we'll... things sketched out. We will, we will oh, confer. Oh, we're going to do more Andor. We are. Oh, we are doing the second half of Andor. There will be another Andor episode. Um, I think we're going to have to do Avatar. I, you know. You keep saying this, listeners. <laughs> okay. Dan says this every time it comes up about like what we're going to do at the end of the year. I feel like Avatar a little bit like I feel like this in that it's just like a cultural blank space for me. 
Like, it's just like, I don't care. I just don't care about it. Like, I, so you know what? We will put this to the patrons. You know, do you want us? Oh, to Oh, great! That? They can make me watch another thing that I don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, patrons, forget it. You have no input into this one. Anna and I We're will meet an executive. We will meet an executive session and discuss this. But yes, okay, fair we enough. may. You, I we could do a special episode on Avatar. Okay, we'll figure it out. We can do don't a special worry. episode where we just do the thing, where we just go see it and then talk about it, yeah. like we did for like Batman. Right. Right. We can do that. That might be good, but I don't want to put the kind of attention to it. I know, it may, or maybe I'll, I'll love it. Who knows? Who I knows? was going to say, I think you're like, actually, what Who I knows? to be clear, what I want to do is the original Avatar first before we. Oh well, go then see- I really don't care. Okay, there we go. Right. We'll talk <laughs> like, about it. Okay. Well, we won't do our executive session uh, live this time. Yes, that's correct. What else do we have going on? Uh, become a patron. Patreon.com/slash/space/the-nation. We've had some cool like interactions on Twitter lately, mm-hmm. I feel like. So that's nice. Yeah. Tweeted us. I'm at Anna Marie Cox. He's at Don Dresner. Oh, sorry. <laughs> at Dan Dresner. <laughs> hey, who is this guy? I don't know him. Excuse me. It's called Don. <laughs> <laughs> it's pronounced Don. No, it's, your, it's your evil twin. There we go. Like, yes. That's who that is. It's, your, it's the Dan that wears a mustache. Yes. Don Dresner <laughs> killed me in Korea and has taken my place. Don yes. <laughs> Don Dresner has a tat- has a goatee. There we go. Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yes. Very good. Very good. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Keep this channel open.